Y'all have seen it. Come on, right? And you know he's going into the roof, and you're hoping it's not really hot up there. Uh, if you've ever been in an attic, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. Anybody seen that? Come on. Seen like a passion play? And no. Actually, sorry, it's Jesus going up right at the end. I just don't want to say I'm Jesus. So. All right. Ah, it is good to be back. Could, could, um, could someone be so kind to give me some water? Uh, oh, you are awesome. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I, I know a few people made the comment uh, to Rusty that uh, I'm, we're surprised we're starting a new series. I don't know where that, where, why that comment was made. I don't know if that's because we take 15 years to finish one series. Or if that's because you're looking forward to a short series in between. Uh, or I don't know, but nevertheless, we're starting a new series. Uh, it is funny, for many churches, a long series is five weeks. For us, that's a short one. Uh, and uh, <laughs> not that either one is better or worse. Uh, ours probably is worse. Uh, but uh, anyways, uh, so we're going to begin a new series this, this, uh, this week. And... It is entitled Gospel and Kingdom. Now, as a matter of a couple of housekeeping things, I want to encourage you guys, if, uh, if you have not purchased this book right here, God's Big Picture, uh, I want to encourage you to purchase this book and read it. Uh, not set it on a shelf, but read it. Uh, it is really readable uh, and will accomplish the task of helping you see the big picture of the Bible. Uh, I'm going to rely heavily on this book for outline purposes. Um, he really, I think, breaks and says it better than I could ever come up with. Uh, the pattern and the different parts of the kingdom, or the different succession, or the kingdom in succession throughout the scriptures, so the theme of the kingdom throughout the scriptures. And, and so I... Uh, am going to utilize a lot of his work that he has done. So uh, this will really help you uh, with some auxiliary material, give you a really good, solid overview of God's Word. Uh, the second book that I would commend to you uh, is Gospel and Kingdom. I'm not preaching this book. That's not the title of the series because I'm preaching this book. Uh, we're preaching the Bible. But he really helps... Uh, in accomplishing two tasks, and that is the first one of giving a big overview of the Bible, but then secondly, some hermeneutical or some interpretation principles uh, that I operate on prior to reading this book, and certainly do after enjoying some of Graham Goldsworthy's work. So, I don't typically uh, do that with books, but I just want to encourage you uh, this series is a little different than probably every series that we've done. Typically, we take a book of the Bible uh, and work through that book verse by verse, phrase by phrase, so on and so forth. Uh, it would be a really hard to do that one uh, with this um, because we would be here for all of eternity, uh, literally, if we were to start in Genesis and go verse by verse. Nor do I think that that would be healthy for us as a body. Uh, to spend that kind of time in Genesis, uh, or any particular book for that, for that long. But, uh, so, a couple introductory thoughts for us as we get started. Um, 
We have two goals in this series. I just want to lay this out from the very beginning. We have two goals in this series. One is an overview of the Bible. And that's where I'm telling you that this book here will really help give a good overview of the Bible. The second goal is for us to acquire skills to interpret the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Particularly the Old Testament. And if I can be a little more specific, pre-Pentecost writings. So, we have two goals. Overview of the Bible. So over the next ten, ten weeks, or eight weeks, whatever it's supposed to be, uh, I hope to, you to walk away going, I see the big picture. Like, I got it. You may not know all the intricacies, all the details. You may not be able to write the next theology book, but you will have the big picture. The second is that you can enter into particularly the Old Testament with uh, confidence in how do we understand these words rightly. So today, though, we have two tasks. Today we have two tasks. One is introductory thoughts on biblical theology and interpretation. You're going, whoa, when did we go to seminary? But we have, we have to kind of set some stage here uh, for the rest of the time. So first is some thoughts on what biblical theology is and on interpretation. Might feel a little more like a seminary lecture. I try to keep it, I'm going to try and keep it from feeling that way. Then the second goal is for me to preach the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. Okay? So just know there's going to be a little bit of a dichotomy there uh, just because that's just how it's going to have to be. So I hope to proclaim to you the text of Genesis 1 and 2. And here's kind of the crux, and, and pray for me as we attempt to do this both today and going forward. Because what I want to do is I want to show you guys, while preaching, I want to show you biblical theology and how to interpret the text in the middle of that. So, you're saying, well, why are you drawing all these fancy lines around everything? Because convictionally, it's important to me that I simply proclaim to you the content and the intent of the Scriptures. Right, so if you want to, I'll try to do this when I can. But I want to kind of step to the side, if you will, out of preacher mode, and say this is a hermeneutical principle, or this is biblical theology. How, and, and then step back into preacher mode, because I want to kind of be instructive to you uh, on how we're getting to there in the text. Does that make sense? And that's really important to me convictionally, uh, because I'm not a seminary professor, right, that has its place. Uh, I'm a preacher of God's Word, so I want to be clear. So, this first section is going to sound a little more lecture-like, uh, and there's just no way around it. So, let's just jump right in, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. The first one is an introductory thoughts on biblical theology and interpretation. And you're going, wow, what is all this stuff? First of all, what I want to do, some of you guys, a lot of you guys have dabbled in or even fully immersed yourself in systematic theology, uh, and I want to kind of talk to you just a little bit about the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. So first of all, we have to define theology. What is theology? Theology means the knowledge of God as God himself reveals it. So we're going to study theology. If we study the word of God, you cannot get away from theology. You study God's Word, you're studying theology. It is the knowledge of God as God Himself reveals it. So the task ahead of us 
is to try to discern what God is saying and how he says it. Right? So that's always the task. What is God saying and how is he saying it? This is God as he reveals himself to us. Biblical theology, so now let's get into the kind of distinction between biblical theology and systematic theology. Biblical theology is not concerned to state the final doctrines which go to make up the content of our belief or our Christian belief. Okay, biblical theology is not concerned with that. Systematic theology is. It's concerned to come up with the final doctrines which go to make up the content of Christian belief. But instead, the biblical theology is concerned with the process by which revelation unfolds and moves towards the goal, which is God's final revelation and His purposes in Jesus Christ. So biblical theology is concerned with the revealing of God towards the goal of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's biblical. It's, it's kind of the theme, kind of tracing the theme of God revealing Himself to us. To the world. Systematic theology, though, is mainly interested in the finished article, the statement of doctrine. That's not the goal in biblical theology. Now, the systematic theologian is dependent upon the biblical theologian to understand the pre Pentecost text. So, prior to Pentecost, the systematic theologian is dependent upon the biblical theologian to understand the text. Okay? Now, you'll, f- you'll figure out why as we go along. Uh, you say, well, why, why is this? What, what's going on with that? What does it make that the case? And just to put it in simple terms as I can, pre-Pentecost, well, I'm sorry, let me, I, I'll do it from the opposite direction. Post-Pentecost, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is also after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So the gospel has come. Like the kingdom of God in Jesus has come. So post-Pentecost, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, texts are written through this understanding of the gospel. Pre-Pentecost, we then, the gospel has not come in its fullness in Jesus Christ yet. So we, post-Pentecost, then look back through the gospel at those texts prior to Pentecost. And we understand them through the gospel. Now you're, you're going, well, what does that mean? Do I, through the blood of Jesus? I mean, what, is that weird? No. We're, that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to spend these next number of weeks trying to solidify. How do we do that? So when we say we're not under the law, but there's advantages and necessities of the law, how do we view that? And when we say we view that, how do we exercise it? Well, we do that through the gospel, and that's what we're trying to answer, is how do we do that through the gospel? Uh, So, the next question, so that's kind of systematic theology versus biblical theology. Both of those are seen as authoritative theological practices or disciplines. I don't want to go into any more detail on that, just just a hair, I guess. So, systematic theology, biblical theology, are concerned with simply proclaiming the truth of Scripture. So, they see to it as their goal to say, Scripture says this, Scripture means this. Yes, there's interpretation involved, 
but the goal, if they, assuming they are right, it is authoritative. Okay? Biblical theology, systematic theology, and then the one that's down here that we're not even going to talk about today is exegetical theology. Okay? But that's just simply deriving from the text the meaning of the text. That's exegetical theology. Right? And they're all... All right. So, with that in mind, we ask the question, why read the whole Bible? We're Gentiles. We got the New Testament. It's it got Jesus. Why do we read the whole Bible? I, I want to give you a couple thoughts. This is a little more history, but uh, we are per, part of, as a church, I, I as your pastor, Rusty as your pastor, are part of what is kind of known as the Reformed heritage. Right, so, coming out of Catholicism, we have the Reformers, and, and that means Reformed heritage means more than just simply we believe in election or predestination or perseverance of the saints, whatever. It means more than that, certainly not less than that, but it means more than that. Um, this includes the, that would be what we'd call the doctrines of grace, um, but also means more. So I just want to, we will hold to this term. I know this is a big term, but uh, I, I'll go ahead and give it to you, perspicuous, right? The perspicuousness of Scripture. What does that mean? That's what we hold to. That means that we believe the Bible is clear and self-interpreting. The Bible is clear and self-interpreting. So this comes out of a heritage, but it means, so when, when, and when, the reason I say heritage is I'm saying this is not just something we thought of yesterday. Like I wasn't sipping a mocha in my office going, huh, this sounds like a cool idea. Let's say that, th- no, this is, this is something that has, and, and, and would go beyond just simply the Reformation as well. But um, what's going on there is that we believe there is no authority for interpreting Scripture outside of the Bible. Okay? There's no authority for interpreting Scripture outside of the Bible. It's not the church. The church does not interpret Scripture for us. Wayne Grudem does not interpret Scripture for us. The Word interprets the Word. We are free, when we do that, when we believe that, we are free to accept and see the principles and interpretation that are contained within the Bible itself. And that's key. The Reformers, I think, were establishing a method of biblical interpretation in which the natural historical sense of the Old Testament witness has significance for Christians because of its organic relationship to Christ. Okay? Now that's kind of that's very fundamental. The Old Testament has significance because it in an organic relationship relates to Christ. So, a couple other introductory thoughts. The New Testament presupposes a knowledge of the Old Testament. The New Testament presupposes a knowledge of the Old Testament. Everything that is a concern to the New Testament writers is a part of one redemptive history to which the Old Testament witnesses. So this big, long Old Testament history that witnesses to this big redemption plan that God has taken place. The New Testament presupposes this knowledge of the Old Testament. Next, the conviction of Jesus and the apostles. 
Again, this is another foundational point. Conviction of Jesus and the apostles. The Old Testament is Scripture, and Scripture points to Christ. And we don't have time to defend this this morning, but the conviction of Jesus and the apostles is that the Old Testament is Scripture. And Scripture points to Christ. Those are both very key pieces. It's not one without the other. There's Scripture, and there's Scripture, and it points to Christ. That's a necessity. How we understand the Old Testament testifying about Christ must be discovered by the terms set forth in the New Testament. And so when we look back at the Old Testament, the terms to which we interpret that are set forth by the New Testament. Okay? The gospel, the gospel has come. We're going to talk about a little bit more of that as we go. So the New Testament provides the Christian with an authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament. So what I'm saying to you is that If we're going to understand the Old Testament, we're going to understand it through the authority of the New Testament. Not that the Old Testament has less authority. That's not the point. It doesn't. They're equally authoritative. It is one big story. But it's only when you see it as one big story that you can understand. Let me give you a little bit of an example here. Has anybody seen The Sixth Sense? Anybody not seen it? Okay. So, what happens in this movie is that Bruce Willis is going around talking to people and kind of like living this life, right? So, I'm going to ruin it for a few of you people. At the end of the movie, you realize that Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. Now, if you take that movie and go back and try and watch it a second time, you watch it totally differently, don't you? you realize that when he's sitting in the room with the woman that, uh, that he is, they never actually make eye contact. They never actually look at each other. They're not actually talking to each other. And so you view it differently. So it's the same thing when it comes to Scripture. We who are post-Christ, post-ascension, we look back at the Old Testament and we have to read it through the knowledge. Of course, this is kind of anti-gospel, right? Because Bruce Willis is dead, our Savior is alive. But, but we look back through Jesus at the Old Testament. And you cannot read the text the same way as if you would have read it not knowing who Jesus or the New Testament is. So you read it through knowing that these scriptures, ultimately that these scriptures, these pictures, these narratives, these laws, all these things point to Jesus. They are types of Jesus. They are foreshadowing Jesus in the gospel and and the kingdom. And that's how we must understand the Old Testament. We will see that the gospel has been in the picture all along. And I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray that for you guys, that as you read the Old Testament, that you begin to see the blood on the pages. That you begin to see Jesus. That it points to Christ. The gospel is rooted in the history of redemption. And that's what the Old Testament gives us, the history of redemption. And the gospel is not rooted in the New Testament. It's rooted here at the very beginning of Genesis. We understand the gospel, I'm sorry, we must understand, and this is again fundamental for us, we must understand the gospel as good news about Jesus before it can become good news for sinful men and women such as you and I. We must understand it as good news about Jesus first before we can see it as to us. So 
The Old Testament is a progressive revelation of the gospel that sees its full reality in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see in the New Testament. Okay. So, a few thoughts on interpretation. Uh, we struggle, I think, when it comes to understanding the Old Testament. We, what do we do with things like dietary laws, sacrifices, the temple? What do we do with all that weird stuff? What do we do with stories like David and Goliath or Daniel and the lion's den? Are those just simply stories of how we should have courageous faith? Like, is the story of David and Goliath just about us? What was that Christian movie called? Uh, what? Facing the Giants. Is that what the gospel, is that what the, door, the story of David and Goliath is simply about? Uh, I, I, I think not. But I think there's a whole lot more richness to it than just simply a character study, which is where we tend to default to when it comes to the Old Testament. We tend to look at the character and go, what good things can we learn from that character that we should emulate? Uh, and just as that would be terrible when it comes to Jesus, because there's a whole lot more than just simply his character. But there's a whole lot more in the Old Testament when it comes to the truth that's being revealed than just simply some character that we are to model our character after. How do we understand these things today, Daniel and Alliance, and how do we apply this? So here's what happens. We look at these things and say, I can never understand the Bible, and certainly not the Old Testament. We hear things like, you need to know Hebrew to understand the Old Testament. You need to understand Greek culture, or you will miss the New Testament. So what happens is we conclude that we don't stand a chance. And so we either just read at a surface level, or we just walk away and wash it as something that I'll get around to when it's relevant for me or when I might be able to understand it. So particular dealing with the Old Testament, the question comes down to what interprets the Old Testament? We've already said the gospel, but just to acknowledge some things that are not right, do our feelings interpret the Old Testament? Our best guess? Our current life situation? Hebrew culture? Second century historians? I mean, is this the stuff that we depend on to interpret the Old Testament? Not saying that all of that is irrelevant because it has its place, but some of this can help us understand. And here's what I would propose to you. A lot of those things I just listed can help us understand the content of the Old Testament, but will have very little help in helping us understand the intent of the content. That particularly depends upon the gospel. The answer is the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ for our salvation. That is the lens through which we view the Old Testament. So my desire is for us to walk away being able to understand and have a framework for answering these kinds of questions like, what does David and Goliath have to do with us today? What does the dietary laws have to do with Jesus what is this? Where is this relevance at? And I want you guys to be able to answer these questions as we walk away from this series in 8, 16, 20 weeks, whatever it takes, right? I'm just setting myself, I'm trying to lower your expectations, right? Uh, so, okay, moving along, all right, keys to interpretation. You're going, wow, this is so, still similar, but uh, this is where I'm kind of nerdy. So I'm like enjoying this, just for the record. If you're not, I'm sorry. Uh, keys to interpretation. First one, there's one author. One author. This is, guys, this book, not that one, this one is God's big 
picture. Okay? This is God's big picture, the whole thing, minus the index and the con- label, cable contents, all that. Written by one author with one main subject. Let's talk about this for a second. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now obviously, Paul is referring primarily to the Old Testament, as most of the New Testament had not been written yet. But then Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So clearly Paul is placing these writings at the same level of those he's referring to in 2 Timothy 3.16. So one author. Secondly, one subject. There's one subject that binds the whole book together. That subject is Jesus Christ and the salvation that God offers through Him. That subject is Jesus Christ and the salvation God offers through Him. This is true of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And see, I think that's where we make this dichotomy and where we suffer when it comes to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about Jesus Christ and the salvation that God offers through Him. So John, a few verses, John 5, 39. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. This is Jesus speaking. So even if you're a red letter only person, Jesus is saying the Old Testament is about me. It's not fundamentally or primarily about the Jews or Israelite culture. It is about Jesus. He says they are about me. They witness about me. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. Luke 24, verse 44. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Must be fulfilled. Written about me. So here Jesus is referring to the three main divisions of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings, sometimes synonymous with the Psalms. Referring to the whole Old Testament. Writings about me. So, one author, one subject, one kingdom. One kingdom. This is going to be a theme, gospel and kingdom. These two things are going to just permeate all of our talk in Scripture and understanding and house gatherings. Hopefully until Jesus comes back. Uh, And then he can correct us, right? For everything we got wrong. But one kingdom, and this kingdom, this is something I would encourage you to to just let it sink right in here. When we talk about kingdom, we mean three things. I mean three things, and I think we'll see three things represented in Scripture as well. One kingdom, that's God's people, God's people in God's place, 
under God's rule and subsequent blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people, God's place, God's rule. All right, almost done with the lecture type stuff. The main goal and interpretation is this, to show the significance of the text in the light of the gospel. This is key. Again, I've probably said this ten times already this morning, but to show the significance of the text in the light of the gospel. So to interpret a text, we must discern its relationship to the revelation of God in Christ. To do this, we have to draw upon our knowledge. Right? So here's where we see God's big picture and the necessity of that. It's where we see this come into major play here now. Right? So to understand, to interpret the text in light of its relationship to the revelation of God in Jesus, we have to draw upon our knowledge of the structure of revelation that we learn in biblical theology. So in order to interpret this text here, we have to see it in light of this big theme throughout all of Scripture as it leads up to Jesus. If not, then we will miss the point of that text. So each layer, as God reveals the kingdom, and each layer, each layer essentially has the same ingredients relating to the saving acts of God and the goal to which they lead, which is Jesus. So, again, another way of saying this. Each layer of this revelation is a foreshadowing, if you will, the realities of the gospel to come. It reaches its fullness in Christ. Now, let me say this too. As God reveals in history this plan of redemption and His kingdom, it doesn't just move chronologically, but it makes more clear the nature and the picture of God's kingdom. So, as we'll see in Genesis, the full picture has not been revealed yet. Like, it in its perfection has not been revealed yet. It will be revealed more clearly as time goes along in the Old Testament, through the Bible, chronologically even. But it will be revealed more thoroughly, more clearly, until we see it perfected in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a quote from Graham Goldsworth. He says this, From man's point of view, we see the Scriptures unfold a step-by-step process until the gospel is reached as the goal. But from God's point of view, we know that the coming of Christ to live and to die for sinners was the predetermined factor even before God made the world. Right? So from our vantage point, it's an unfolding until we get to Jesus. From God's vantage point, this has always been the goal from the very beginning. So he was simply enacting that plan from the very beginning. So, I would encourage you to write this down. You might be running out of notes by now, but there's space for notes. Uh, I want to give you a diagram of this probably on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. But we see the original pattern in Eden, the pattern of the kingdom. We see that in Eden. Then what happens is the fall. Then we have kind of like the, what we call the type, where 
the history of Israel is foreshadowing the coming kingdom that we will see in Jesus. So we have the history of Israel foreshadowing this. Then we have the confirmation of that coming from the prophets. And then we have the fulfillment of that in Jesus. Okay? So, so we have it perfected in the kingdom here within the pattern. Not perfected, sorry. But we have the pattern of the kingdom here. Then we have the fall. And, sorry. We have the pattern of the kingdom here in Eden. We have the fall. Then Israel and the history of Israel as a foreshadowing of God's coming kingdom. Then as Revelation moves, it is, gets more clear. And we move to the next step and forward in history to the promising of that coming through the prophets and then we see that realized in Jesus Christ and that has two parts both his coming to earth and then the consummation of that when Christ returns finally for all of eternity so uh, each of these pieces throughout all of that relates to the kingdom of God so the kingdom is promised initially to Abraham right the kingdom is foreshadowed with David. The kingdom promise is renewed by the prophets. The kingdom is at hand when the coming of Jesus. And the kingdom will be fully revealed at the second coming of Jesus. So until the kingdom is fully revealed or, or consummated, God has graciously provided a progressive revelation of the Christ event. Right. So that's key. It is one big Christ event, and God has just slowly revealed it over many, many years. The Christ event. So we have two purposes for the foreshadowing. I promise we are about ready to jump into the text. And you're all like, I'm tired already. All right, so hang with me. We have two purposes for these foreshadowing, for the foreshadowings of the gospel. One is this. The progressive revelation led man to the full light of truth. The progressive revelation led man to the full light of truth. So it all leads to the gospel in Jesus Christ. Secondly, the progressive revelation provided the means whereby the Old Testament believer embraced the gospel before it was fully revealed. So have you ever wondered the question, well, how did, like, did everybody pre-Jesus go to hell? Like, did all the Israelites go to hell? Why, how do we answer that? Like, they don't have Jesus. I think it's because of this. Those who believed the shadow were able to grasp the reality. So by believing in God's provision of grace through faith in the Old Testament, and was a, simply a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus at a later time. So by Christ, the saints of the Old Testament were saved. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a lot there, okay? And, but for right now, look up these verses. John 8, 56. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Galatians 3, 8. Hebrews eleven sixteen. I'll say that one more time. John 8, 56. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Good, buddy. Galatians 3, 8. Hebrews eleven sixteen, you almost are really concentrating, or you don't know CB talk. All right. I got a few courtesy laughs. 
Okay. All right. We're getting there. I, I know every text relates in some way to the basic structure of the kingdom revelation and is therefore capable of relating to the New Testament at its corresponding point. Every text, particularly the Old Testament, relates in some way to the basic structure of the kingdom being revealed and is therefore capable of relating to the New Testament at its corresponding point. Okay. So a saving event in the Old Testament relates to the one great saving event of the gospel. Does that make sense? So like a saving event in the Old Testament would be like David and Goliath. So we see David, God rescuing, God saving the Israelites through the work of David in slaying Goliath. And that corresponds to the ultimate saving event of Jesus to slay sin and death on the cross. Right? So that corresponds to that. A priestly mediator in the saving event of the Old Testament relates to one great priestly mediator in the salvation of the gospel. All right, let's read these real quick. Some methods of interpretation. And you guys, you'll have time to sort through this later. One, well, I'll just leave it there. You guys can read it later. We'll move on. So a Bible overview. A Bible overview is the next thought. If you want to write these down, the pattern of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, I'm just going to fly through these. You can get them later. The promised kingdom, the partial kingdom, the prophesied kingdom, the present kingdom, the proclaimed kingdom, and the perfect kingdom. This is what we're going to talk about over the next 16 weeks, 8 weeks, whatever. Okay, almost there. Last couple thoughts. Graham Goldsworthy said this uh, on biblical theology. I think this is a lesson for all of us to hear. The lesson of biblical theology is this, that no text... All right, everybody concentrate with me. I want you to hear this. The lesson of biblical theology is that no text stands alone, and the whole of Scripture is its ultimate context. So we should beware of taking every portion of a size convenient for daily reading and forcing it to yield up some self-contained Scripture relevant and edifying to the church. And doing so, we may in fact destroy the very message which is present for us in the wider context. Okay? So what we've seen so far. Biblical theology is concerned with the process by which revelation unfolds and moves towards the goal of Jesus Christ. The main goal of interpretation is to show the significance of the text in light of the gospel. So, with that, let's move forward. The pattern of the kingdom. The pattern of the kingdom. Four things we ought to know. Four things we ought to know. We're going to boogie. These inform us. Oh, wait. Imagine I just read Genesis 1 and 2. For the sake of time, I already read it. Okay? Genesis 1 and 2. Four things we ought to know from Genesis 1 and 2. So these things inform us about the kingdom. 
This is the beginning of God's revelation of the gospel. It begins at the very beginning. The kingdom as it was originally created, that's what we will see here in Genesis 1 and 2. The first thing we see is that God is the author of creation. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look at Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God is the only being to have existed eternally. There has never been a time when God did not exist. Even Jesus in the Incarnation, His existence eternally preceded His incarnational experience. So God is the author of creation. Uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 3, And God said, So God simply said the word, and each item came into existence. It came into existence out of nothing. Now whether this is a literal 24-hour period or a longer period, it doesn't really matter, in my opinion. What matters is that God created all things. Right? So whether it was a literal 24, people really get upset about that. What matters is that God created it. Not happenstance, not science, not evolution, that God created it. Genesis 1, 2b says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we see the presence of the Holy Spirit there. John 1, 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him, the speaking of Jesus, was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was the agent that carried out the will of God in creation. Jesus, we know later, was the one who carried out creation. So let's talk about physical versus spiritual. This is grounds for understanding that both are equally important. We're not to regard this earth as something to be disposed of. We do not regard our bodies as something to be saved from in order to live in the non-material world in which God lives. We will see later on that sin spoiled everything in the world, both spiritual and the physical. And God is redeeming both. Sacred versus secular. We should understand this world as not having this false dichotomy. It's not a divide. There is nothing that's sacred and nothing that is secular as far as dividing those two things. God created all things, and as such, we should regard all things as sacred. Our jobs are not secular. We, I think Satan has us tricked into thinking that so that we don't have to proclaim Jesus in our jobs because that's secular. We just have to proclaim Jesus at church and with our Jesus friends, because that's all sacred. But these are not sacred, no. It's all sacred. It's all in need of redemption through the power of Jesus Christ. So God made everything in the beginning, and He will redeem everything by the end. We are on a journey of sorts back to the beginning of sorts, the way it was originally created. So, God is the author, God is the king of creation. Since God created everything, that means He is Lord over everything. This is something that we ought to know from the text. Since God created everything, it means He is Lord over everything. This means both the physical and the spiritual. This means both sacred and secular in our false dichotomy. Psalm 95, verse 3 through 7 says this, For the Lord is, great, for the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods, in His hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountain are His also. The sea is His, 
for he made it, and his hands formed of the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. For God is far above all that he has created, and he is distinct from it. Right, this is very key. This explains God's hatred for idolatry. So think about this. If God is so far above and distinct from what He has created, when we worship anything that He has created, we are saying that His creation is more valuable and worthy of worship than He is. And that is anything, right? Good things becoming ultimate things. When we begin to worship those, we are saying that which you created, God, is more worthy of worship than yourself. God's created everything. He is king over everything. Our duty is to submit to him as our king. This is why idol worship is so fundamentally wrong. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Third thing we ought to know, human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, the apex, the point. The, we are creatures in that we are a part of the created order. God, everything else, and we're in that category. But we are the pinnacle in that category. We're not just animal. We were made in the image of God. We're made, nothing else is made in the image of God. Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We reflect something of God's nature in a way that nothing else in creation does. Now there's lots of debate over what that is. Not the point here. We're not coming up with a doctrinal statement on the image of God. Or anthropology, you know, we're not doing that. We're coming up with the theme, the kingdom, and what's the big picture being painted here. We reflect something of God's nature in a way that nothing else creation does. We have a dignity and have been set above the rest of creation. God then gives us the responsibility to rule over the rest of creation. Right? So as God is set apart from us, so are we set apart from creation. God rules over everything. We rule over His creation. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, the sea, and over the birds, and the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So if you're afraid of spiders, you have dominion over them spiders. And you should exercise dominion. Because right now, for you that are like, oh, spiders, come kill it for me. That spider has dominion over you, and you need to repent. Robbie. All right. We have been entrusted by God to care, right? We've been entrusted by God to care for all of creation. But we are his pinnacle of this creation. The fourth thing we ought to know rest is the goal of creation. Rest is the goal of creation. No, now we come to the climax of the creation account Genesis 2 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, 
And he rested on the seventh day from all, all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Guys, notice when I read Genesis 1 and 2 that after every day of creation, it ends with, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. That ending is not here on the seventh day. I believe this is indicative that God has been resting ever since. He wants us to live with Him in that seventh day, sharing in His rest and enjoying His perfect creation. Now this is not rest in the sense of doing nothing, right? So God didn't just set it into motion and now He's in His lazy boy or you know, out at the beach chilling, right? No, he is still active, but he has rested, and he is now resting in the sense of enjoying his creation. You say there's lots of evil in this world. He is enjoying his creation. This has been his plan all along, even the evil that we see. This is rest in the sense of living in the peace and tranquility of his perfect creation. So we see in Genesis 2, 4 through 25, focusing on Adam and Eve and their experience in this creation, this is the life that God had originally intended. So what we see in the garden, guys, this is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. It ends very quickly, but we see in 1 and 2, we see God's people. That's Adam and Eve living in God's place, right? The garden that was going to provide for all of their needs, take care of everything that they would ever possibly need. God's people in God's place, living perfectly in God's under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing in that perfect obedience. This is the pattern of the king. This is the pattern that God had established for us and that God is in the process of redeeming. So, three things we ought to do. Three things we ought to do in light of this. So now, we're going to look back, we're going to see the pattern of the kingdom, we're going to view it through the lens of the gospel, and say, what is it that we can learn in application to us from Genesis 1 and 2? First one is, live as the people of God. Live as the people of God. This was the pattern of the kingdom. We are seeing this being more realized and realized every day, and will be finished and final at the return of Christ. For now, though, we still get to live as the people of God. So the pattern of the kingdom, we see here in the garden, man was created as the people of God. Here in the garden, we have a life as it was meant to be. And God loves and cares about man so much. God even creates woman to be his helper and companion. Even that aspect, we have to view in light of all of Scripture and this pattern, this relationship that's being established here. But now we look at this event as living as God's people through the lens of the gospel. And the gospel tells us that this was the kingdom as it was meant to be, but just shy of perfection. And so his creation was perfect, but failure would come. Right? So we see that, again, looking back through the lens of the gospel, everything God created was good. It was perfect, but failure by them would soon come. So it's in this kingdom the people of God would soon 
usurp the authority of God. Ultimately, the garden is a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come in Jesus. So this pattern is showing, is this revealing of the perfect kingdom that would come in Christ. So the gospel has always been open to all the human race. We can look at that later. But God chose the Israelites to find salvation through the gospel. Israel was the people of God as a picture of the perfected person of God that would come in Christ. So, we live as the people of God. What does that mean? Why do we live as the people of God through Jesus? We are God's people doing God's work through Jesus. We're called to exercise dominion over the earth. We're called to be God's people. We can only be God's people through the work of the gospel. By grace, through faith. It's the same thing with the Israelites. We'll expound upon that more as we go at a later day. So through Jesus as the head of our race, we live as God's chosen people. Right? So Jesus becomes the new Adam, and we live as the new people of God under Christ. The second thing we ought to do is live in God's place. Live in God's place. So live as God's people live in God's place. The pattern of the kingdom. Again, what do we see? Genesis 1 and 2, as far as living as in God's place. God places Adam in an environment that will, through God's grace, care for all of his needs. It'll take care of everything he could ever need or want. He will live in the seventh day of rest for the rest of his life, given that he follows God's rule. This is the place that Adam is put. Adam and Eve both are now carrying out the plan and responsibility that God has given them, namely, ruling over creation, being a steward of creation. This authority is not abused, and they work the land and take care of it. So through the lens of the gospel, what do we see? We see that this place is foreshadowing a place where God's people will find rest and joy in Him. Right? So we see Adam and Eve living in rest and joy in God. When Jesus comes to you, He tells us that the kingdom has come upon us. What He literally means is that the perfect kingdom is here in Him. There is no longer a shadow, but the reality is here. So living in God's place, I don't, we don't have time to dig into this, but is really, as I understand it, is, is where Christ has brought about redemption. It is Him. That is the perfect place of God. So we as adopted sons and daughters under Jesus enter the kingdom of God through Jesus. So we're to live in God's place. This is where Christ is. So, here's, so what does this look like? As we have dominion, as we live in God's place... What that means is that we who are in Christ, that the redemption of all things around us should be taken place. So our work ethic, our marriages, our parenting, everything around us should be being redeemed by the gospel as we exercise dominion over this place. That is the gospel coming through us exercising this dominion over this earth. We are to bring redemption to everywhere we go since we are the people of God. There are great implications for that statement, and I'll let you work those out later. 
Live under God's rule is the third thing we ought to do. Live under God's rule. The pattern of the kingdom. There is no doubt that God will be the one in charge, right? We see this in the garden. God has clearly set forth parameters. Although they're very small, I mean, they're huge. Like, man has lots of freedom, and there's just something that he's not supposed to do. But he's also given great charge to exercise dominion. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge, Genesis 2.17, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is not being oppressive, but instead this is for their good. So, through the lens of the gospel, we see that Adam and Eve, at this point, Genesis 1 and 2, are showing us what this perfect obedience in relationship to God looks like. We see them living perfectly in obedience to God. Simply, obviously, this is not going to be able to be maintained for a long time but will be in Christ. What Adam and Eve could only uphold for a short period of time will be perfected for all of eternity in Christ. This perfect obedience would be held for all of eternity for Christ. Jesus will be born a man, live under God's rule perfectly. He will then defeat sin and death on the cross and through His resurrection. He will become the new Adam, the perfect Adam, and He will become the new kingdom God, living underneath God's rule perfectly for all of eternity. So we as the people of God should bear much fruit as we live under God's rule. Right? So it's all, it, it, dude, every day struggles come down to us. Do we want to live underneath our rule or do we want to live underneath God's rule? Our rule, God's rule. Our rule, God's rule. When we sin, our rule wins out. When God is being glorified, God's rule. We submit and we live underneath His. We live a blessed life underneath God's rule. When we see that we, who are incapable just as Adam and Eve, will be made capable, uh, sorry, we then see that we, who are incapable of living per- this perfect obedience just as Adam and Eve, we will be made capable only through the perfect upholding of Jesus Christ. So we become the people of God living in perfect obedience to God, not by our doing, but by the doing of Jesus. Right? The fruit of that is the holiness and sanctification that's taking place in our lives. But it's Christ who sets that, earns us that place. Who? All right, we'll move on. Through the, through the power of the gospel the power of the gospel, guys, we seek to prepare for all of eternity by living under God's rule now. Right? So, again, we try to separate, we try to categor, like, we try to departmentalize all these things in our life. Well, there's heaven, this is now, this was before I was a believer in Jesus, and, and this is my secular life, and this is my sacred life, and this is my thought life, and this is my, my emotional life, and this is my spiritual life, and what we don't get is that God is king over all of that, and that all of that should be being brought into submission underneath the rule of God. Jesus did it perfectly, so we don't have to do it perfectly to, to earn it, because we're not earning it, but it's a fruit of the gospel taking root in our hearts. 
And it's not something that we can separate out and keep certain things in the closet for later enjoyment. It is the redemption of all of who we are in preparation for all of eternity. A few closing thoughts. The kingdom of God. We see a pattern in the kingdom of God. God's people, it's Adam and Eve. God's place is the garden underneath God's rule. They enjoy God's great blessing. And it won't take long for man to ruin this. We will begin to see the story of God redeeming man back to himself very quickly. We'll begin to see the foreshadowing of the gospel and the kingdom to come. Ultimately, Jesus is, and we're going to unpack this as we go, Jesus is the perfect people of God, Jesus is the perfect place of God, and Jesus is the perfect, obedient Son of God. God wants us to live in the rest of His creation. Enjoying, living peacefully, enjoying His creation. And through Jesus we can. Now, albeit as distracted as it might be, we can have something of this rest now. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. What do you think Jesus is referring to there? He's referring he knows, he understands the kingdom of God. And he's living, right, in the kingdom of God. He is the kingdom of God, living this out, living in perfect rest. But we look forward to fully experiencing this rest in the new creation after Jesus returns. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Just a side note here, I think the command and the law to uphold the Sabbath rest was primarily to remind the Israelites of the rest to which they were to be living in. The rest of God. It wasn't, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. It was to remind them that they have chosen a different path, that man has chosen a different path that leads away from the rest of God, the rest as in resting in God. And this is a reminder of this is the redemption that's being taken place. Back to the rest of God. When we rest in Christ, we are resting in the perfect kingdom. We rest in being God's people. We rest in God's place. We rest under God's rule. Jesus said these words, Luke eleven twenty, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We see that. I know there's so much more. I know maybe your brains are like overloaded this morning and you know I see like I see like hydraulic fluid leaking out, you know, like you know, like a bad pump from Harbor Freight, you know, just squirting out and uh but uh it's okay. Like so this is what I want to encourage you to do, all right? I want to encourage you to do this. Uh, hopefully you took good notes. Uh, otherwise, if you didn't, but even if you did, uh, obviously the podcast will be up. I'd encourage you to go back, re-listen. Like this is so fundamental, so foundational to our faith. 
Uh, if we want to read, if we want to be the people of God, we got to read the Word of God, right? Uh, I, I really, I think this could be life-changing, as I do every week, but I'm going to say it again this week. It's been life-changing for some of you guys in your faith journey. Radically changed the way you understand and interpret Scripture and apply it to your life. And um, So I just want to encourage you guys to do that. Um, Thanks for hanging with me this morning. I'm going to cut the last song as, as I have went thoroughly over. Uh, instead of preaching last week, I had to bottle it all up and listen to John Piper. Uh, so I was suffering for Jesus. Uh, well, um, anyways. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. I, I hope that you guys feel edified uh, and encouraged. It might be setting kind of heavy up here. But that's okay. Don't do this. Don't go to lunch and forget about it, right? Let it set heavy. Go home and think about it. Hammer it out with someone. You've got lots of thoughts. Do that. If you want to, you know, talk and ask questions with me or Rusty, uh, please do so. I want to help you guys understand the word. Um, they argue in, in teaching. They argue this, guys. I wanna, I'll close with this. They, they argue that less is more, and in some ways that's very, very true. Because a lot of you are probably like, I'm not getting it. Um, that's why I want to encourage you to go home, to dig back into it, re-listen to it, um, and uh, re-read Genesis 1 and 2, and start drawing pictures and seeing stuff in the text. Because we're not talking about here, when we talk about how to interpret the Scripture, we're not talking about some fancy hidden term or hidden uh, numerical value in the text. It's not a code to be unlocked. We're doing what Jesus said. We're looking back and seeing that everything is speaking about Him. So how do we see Him in that text? And I believe that we've done that this morning. So let's pray, and uh, we'll get out of here. Hopefully your roast at home is not burned. Uh, if you're going out to eat, I'm sure they'll still take you. So let's pray. Father, uh, uh, I, I pray that our look at your word this morning uh, Father, has been glorifying to you. Father, I pray that our effort is not in vain. Father, I believe that your word says that it will not return void. Father, I just um, I beg you to make the word alive to your people. Father, help us to see the gospel on every page. Help us to live in the rest that you have provided through your Son, Jesus Christ. Not a rest of laziness, but a rest where we get to enjoy what you've created and what you've created us for as well. Father, let our whole lives be redeemed by the gospel. And Father, we love you so much. And I pray that you would make yourself more clearly known to your people. And it's in your son's most precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.